Hey, this is episode two of Making Fire. So that once a month thing didn't quite work out the way I wanted it to. It kind of slips past. Um, however, I'm going to keep trying to shoot for that. And I'll hit it sometimes. I won't hit it others. Um, this is my second try at making a podcast. So here we go. This one is going to be about urban planning. And it's funny, I had no idea what I wanted to do about innovation and creativity. And I just thought with this, with my first official podcast, I tried to do something that's just a little bit outside of my element. So, here we go. Over the past 20 years or so, it's felt as if there's been an explosion of creativity in urban planning like in Bogota and Pittsburgh and Bristol. And at some point, I want to come back and do an interview podcast with someone who is creative and knows more about this field. But for this first shot at it, I want to focus on two cities, Copenhagen and New York. Before I get into the cities themselves, I want to give a brief review of urban planning in the West, drawn largely from the book by Jan Gell, Life Between Buildings. So we're going to start with medieval times, around AD 500 to about 1500 AD. This is in the Middle Ages, and in that period of time, cities basically developed where they were needed. They were shaped by the residents and the buildings, continually adjusting to the functions and physical environment. It was a mix of function and physical environment. Uh, Cities acted as a public meeting place for citizens, with squares and streets designed for moving and staying outdoors. The Piazza di Capo in Siena is a really good example of what a city or what an urban plan, what an area looks like when it just kind of naturally develops. It's circular, it has multiple levels, just designed for human beings to like live and function in it. We'll skip to the Renaissance. Um, and in the Renaissance, a thing began to redevelop. At this point, there came to be professional planners. They started to become more tools for art or works of art. The areas between the buildings were less important. The buildings and artists who shaped them took precedence. So this is from 1500 AD to about 1930. And in 1930, something started to develop. Uh, The thing that started to develop was a field of urban planning which was called functionalism. With functionalism, physical functions of the city started to become part of a planning dimension separate and distinct from aesthetic. This was influenced heavily by the medical knowledge we developed in the 18 and 1900s, um, where we started understanding bacteria and sewage and causes of diseases. Science developed greatly and so we started to implement that started to like integrate that into what cities look like so light air and sun and ventilation became a lot more important 
examples of this are buildings became oriented toward the sun as opposed to previously they were oriented toward the streets. Um, there became more of a requirement for separation between the workplace and the residence um, as opposed to if you look at tenements in New York, people would be crammed into these tiny apartments next to the clothing factory that they worked in, uh, the meat packing factory that they worked in. So it wasn't particularly hygienic and it wasn't particularly healthy. Another example of functionalism is open building principles. Parallel buildings were positions according to the sun. The problem with functionalism is that despite the fact that we were paying attention, better attention to hygiene and health, there was never a mention of the psychological and social aspects of urban design. We at some point lost the community element of it. There was no thought about buildings, influence on play, no thought about contact or meeting possibilities. The designs became very much more physical and material oriented. Streets and squares disappeared from buildings and cities, replaced with roads and large endless grass lawn. Functionalism differentiated areas and spread out people, but it also reduced the advantages of closer contact and again community. Created a great distance between people and events and so you were isolated either with your nuclear family or alone by yourself. People and their families started to act as units. Private play re replaced communal activity. Along with a loss com of community, there was also a loss of presence and loss of participation and experience. Replaced with a passive presence of watching others do and live their life. You can see examples of this in Australia, South Africa, the US, Canada, pretty much all around the world. If you take a step back and you look at the entire narrative, you can see from medieval times there was a threat of a loss of humanity and community to artistic showpieces, then to the latest in science, and ultimately it's a path to how we rediscover and incorporate all of these things, the art, the science, and the community into what we've started to develop and the innovation and creativity that's starting to show up more in the past 20 years. So around 1960, there was another innovative or creative shift. And Jan Gell doesn't label it this, but my reading of Jan Gill's work and the work of Jane Jacobs, the best way I can describe the current innovation in urban planning would be human-centric urban planning. In the 1990s and early aughts, in places like Bogota under Antonis Mokas and Enrique Penalosa, Pittsburgh under Thomas Murphy, New York City under Michael Bloomberg, there is there was a shift in how we designed and interacted and worked with cities. This brings me back to focus on where I started, the story of Copenhagen and New York and how they created and implemented the ideas of human-centric urban planning and the seismic creative shift that's happening in urban planning today.
I'll start with Denmark because in a way it's kind of the beginning of the entire urban planning revolution. So this entire revolution in a weird way starts with one road in Copenhagen. Stoget, it's a car-free zone in Copenhagen. It's about a kilometer long road in the center of Copenhagen. Stoget itself was modeled after a number of pedestrian streets created in, in Germany after World War II um, because basically the country was bombed out and so they could reinvent what it was and what it looked like and how it felt. And on November 17, 1962, as part of modeling after these pedestrian streets, they closed this busy shopping street in the middle of Copenhagen. So on November 7, 1962, under the protest of drivers and the death threats to the mayor, Stilgate was closed. The success of the closing of this street led to a pedestrian-centric view of the city at the expense of cars in Copenhagen and maybe all of Denmark. So at this point, I just want to pause for a second. Every apocryphal story of creativity has some man coming up with a genius idea from thin air. When an apple fell on Isaac Newton, he came up with Newtonian physics. This story, instead, has two people at its center, one in New York and one in Copenhagen, who simply made some observations that led to this revolution. From here, I'll go back to Copenhagen. After the closure of Stoget in 1972, an architect, urban developer, spouse of a psychologist, Jan Gell, started doing research for his book, Life Between Buildings. That provided the foundation for a policy shift in Copenhagen to a greater human-centered planning. What Gale observed was he noticed social distances. He incorporated how far people can see and hear and how their age affects their movements. He noticed the propensity for people to walk around the edges of large open areas. He noticed how people like to walk and he noticed how the city should start to create more manageable routes. When observing how people play and interact around cars and traffic, he encouraged slower speeds of travel. One observation he made was that an increase in street life also increased creativity and ingenuity. All that said, Gale did not leave a comprehensive outline on how to design a city. He simply wrote, the spaces in which daily life is lived must form the center of attention and effort. He gave three like broad requirements for public space. One, desirable conditions for necessary outdoor activity. Two, desirable conditions for optional recreational activity. And three, desirable conditions for social activities. The thrust of all three of these guidelines is that humans like to interact and cities should act as a place to maximize this interaction and the communal aspects of that. You know that cities are about people first, not speed or commerce. 
both speed and commerce are elements of people, but they aren't the primary elements of people. As an aside, Stilgate is no longer one street. It's, a, it's basically a network of pedestrian streets, so it's expanded over the years. But since they closed it permanently, it, the city has moved towards bikes and pedestrians as a main method of transportation at the expense of cars. Copenhagen became a global inspiration for urban planning, one of the most livable cities in the world. Here's, the, here's some numbers about, about Copenhagen. 50% of the commuting to work and school is by bike, including 63% of the Danish parliament. This must influence their outlook on living in all of Denmark and the laws that reflect it. 35% of all workers in Copenhagen commute by bike to work. Also in that period between 1960 and the present, there has been an explosion and reinvigoration of design and in architecture. Restaurants in Denmark have become very creative and innovative. In fact, what's considered the best restaurant in the world, Noma, is in Copenhagen. I don't know for sure, but my guess is that this explosion of creativity in so many areas is a byproduct of a human-centric city creating and altering the way we live our life. A quote from the book Life Between Buildings that's illuminating. When the main street in Copenhagen was converted to a pedestrian street in 1962 as the first such scheme in Scandinavia, many critics predicted that the street would be deserted because city activity just doesn't belong in Northern European tradition. As we've seen, city activity belongs in human tradition. Now we're going to shift from Copenhagen across the ocean to New York. In 1961, in New York City, a community activist, radical protester, city planner, writer, Jane Jacobs published her book, The Life and Death of Great American Cities. This about the same time that Jan Gehl was doing his research for his book, Jacobs is writing about community-centric revitalization of New York City and large cities in general. Her recommendations included mixed uses of space, need for small blocks so people can interact, need for aged buildings, and need for concentration. The funny thing, or not so funny thing, about the similarity between Jan Gell and Jane Jacobs was that despite their similar views on urban development and roughly a similar time of their research in books, their influence on the area of urban planning are starkly different. Copenhagen used Gale as the spine of the revolution for urban planning that later flourished and spread around the world. Jane Jacobs is best known as a foil for the city planner Robert Moses and his car-centric reshaping of New York. She's known for the fact that she was a community activist instrumental in the elimination of the Lower Manhattan Expressway, which would have passed through Little Italy and Soho in New York City and the revitalization of Greenwich Village. But her larger vision about reshaping and rebuilding cities were, were either not widely adopted or fell on deaf ears for an unprepared or unwilling populace. So it would take up another 40 years for New York City to start to implement some of these human-centric urban planning ideas. Following the economic revival of New York City, the urban planning revival started under Mayor Michael Bloomberg. 
Bloomberg was an innovative manager and CEO of the company Bloomberg, not known for humility, I suppose, in every way. Um, he brought with him a creative outlook on many things, along with analytics and office design. And when he became mayor, he hired two women to help shape the city. The first one is Janet Sadiq Khan, transportation commissioner from 2007 to 2013. The second was Amanda Burden, director of New York City Department of City Planning and chair of, city plan of the City Planning Commission. Sadiq Khan, in her own words, was a complete thief. She basically went around the world borrowing from other places. Take a step back. One of the questions about creativity and innovation that I'm always trying to explore and trying to understand where it comes from is whether people come up with these ideas from nowhere or are they just looking around the world and looking around their communities and finding ideas and mixing and integrating and basically stealing and improving on the ideas they've stolen. So far, it seemed that with urban planning, there's been a lot of just stealing. People are just taking an idea that they saw someone else doing that they thought was interesting and they just took it and integrated it into their area. When Sadiq Khan became transportation commissioner, she did several trips around the world. The trips included to Bogota, which was undergoing an innovative revolution itself. But it was Copenhagen, then and now known as one of the most livable cities, that was particularly influential on Sadiq Khan's reshaping of New York City. In fact, Copenhagen was so influential on her reshaping that she hired the then 72-year-old Jan Gell as a consultant to help redesign the city. His influence is felt citywide. Probably the most, though, it's felt in the citywide bike lanes that are going up and the Broadway re redesign. Gale even affected the process of innovation that was taking place in New York City. His belief in incremental changes that demonstrate larger vision is part of the reason why there was a slow rollout of the bike lanes throughout New York City as opposed to trying to put it in all at once all over the city. So, ironically, it was Copenhagen and Gale that were the thrust of the changes that happened in New York City, despite the fact that Jane Jacobs, a New Yorker herself, had many of the same ideas around the same time that Jan Gale and Copenhagen were coming up with him. Right now, I want to take a moment and consider two things. First, with urban planning, regardless of innovative thinking, political and bureaucratic pushback restrains the extent of creativity. So at this point, I just want to acknowledge the force of Sadiq Khan's personality to be able to affect creativity and change as a strong-willed woman in a male-dominated profession. Second, I just want to take a moment just to think about something that I don't actually know the answer to. Um, I just wonder whether a change in form will stay if there aren't accompanying change in message and thinking. So in, on one hand, there's a change in form to a more human-centric, intuitive 
people and your environment that should be so seamless that it would be impossible to change. And that's possible that the that some of the changes that have taken place in New York City are not reversible because they just are so connected to who we are as a species that they you can't take turn their back. On the other hand, in an interview, Sadiq Khan makes reference to the cost effectiveness of bikes, which is kind of a heady, like technocrat response. She seemed to miss that bikes are merely a byproduct of a human-centered city. That the bikes are a symptom or a manifestation of a place that's trying to build itself around a slower, more intuitive place designed for us as a species. She stole some of the ideas behind this people-centered urban planning, but she seemed to miss some of the spirit. And that may have affected some of her subsequent steps. For example, she put the development of rapid transit buses on the back burner, which is very much human-centered and probably would have made a larger difference on the lives of poor people at the time. Now I'm going to touch on Amanda Burton, the second woman hired by Michael Bloomberg as the director of New York City Department of City Planning from 2002 to 2013. She also took part in some of the exploratory trips and fact-finding missions around the world. Among those missions was to Copenhagen. Amanda Burton is known probably best for two things she did in the city. One, her support and championing of the High Line, a park that's built on an abandoned railroad track in the lower and middle of Manhattan. Today, one of the most popular places in New York City. Again, one of the most creative parks in the world itself an inspiration for a, the Garden Park in London. But the High Line, again, wasn't an idea that came from thin air. It was inspired partly by the Promenade Plenty in Paris. The second thing a man in Burden is known for is her reclaiming of the water as part of New York City. It's funny, as a New Yorker, I often would forget the New York City Water City. It's a city that's basically made up of islands or parts of an island. When you spend so much time walking and on subways, you forget that there's water all around you. And Burden seemed to want to reclaim that part of who we were. Um, in my research on Burden, I wasn't able to find the city that she drew on as motivation. So I don't know if she went to Istanbul and was inspired by the fairies. It's possible that she may have been one of those people that just had an intuitive sense of human beings and how people interact with nature and their environment. Because of that, she just wanted to embrace all parts of what New York was and remind the citizens of the city that we are a water city. So, to wrap this up, I want to try to do something at the end of these podcasts, whether or not it's a research podcast or an interview podcast. I want to just 
pose the question of where to go now. Like where does where can creativity and innovation go next? So since it's just me, I just thought sat down and thought about some of the things that people in urban areas may want to think about as a next step. So I have like three big areas and one small like moonshot that I just want to put out there. One of the things I think we should start to think about is getting low and middle income people more involved and quickly integrated into the human centric urban planning. So they don't feel like it's an elite thing being put upon them. Elites decide to put in bike lanes because it's cool and good for them, but we ignore the things that matter to them, which is why rapid transit buses are just as important as bike lanes to helping people integrate and move around the city as quickly as possible. Bikes slow you down and allow you to see and be present in a different way, but buses also get people to work quicker, which is also important to helping them live better lives. Another way in which I thought of maybe getting lower and middle income people involved in the human-centric push that's happening in cities is giving them easy access to quality, cheap bikes. Is maybe set make the bike ch checkout more similar to a library where you have a card and you can you can use that card to borrow a bike and that way bikes and bike paths become part of your life as it can become a part of someone who's middle class or upper middle class or wealthy in Manhattan. The second thing I thought about on where to move on a human centric urban planning is something that's again, taking place in Copenhagen. It would be focused on providing quality food and groceries to people. The model that I've, that I've seen is called We Food. It's in Copenhagen. And it's a grocery store that basically sells ugly vegetables and expired but still healthy food at severely discounted prices. This way, lower and middle income people can have quality food at cheaper prices so that they, again they don't feel like they're being left out of this cultural human centric change that's going on just because they don't have enough money the third thing is a little bit maybe a little more <laughs> elitist but something i think is important um it's an expansion of quality dining um, if you look at the way what's happening in the world, there's a lot of creativity and innovation that's happening in food in a lot of urban areas, um, partly because of like, innovative people coming together and the mixes of cultures and spices. But a lot of times people are getting left behind when this happens. I read an article in The New Yorker. It was called Tasting Menu Initiative. It was in La Paz, the owners of Noma, again in Copenhagen, decided to take their great food and try to like bring this innovative, creative way of thinking about food to other parts of the world. And when they did this, they took it to La Paz and they brought in like South American ideas and creativity. As part of training the staff for this new restaurant that they were opening in La Paz, they opened up academies. As part of those academies, they had smaller sit-down restaurants for people who could not afford to go to the more expensive restaurant that they were opening to like experience this creativity. And 
there's no reason why that can't happen in other places. I don't think this creativity of like spices and ideas and cultures and this mixing that happens in food needs to be only directed toward wealthy people who can afford it. We should figure out a way to make it a little bit more welcoming and applies to all classes. The one way in which this has started to happening, and I know it started, it started in LA with food trucks and it spread to New York and starting to spread around the world. Food trucks is a variation on street food with bringing in quality food and quality products and inventive cross-cultural ideas. So those are the three main things that I wanted to touch on and where we could go next. My moonshot idea is this. Changing Broadway in New York City into a park, entire street between Columbus Circle and Union Square. There's hints of this in Sadiq Khan's initial long-term vision when she redid Times Square. And there is a design firm called Perkin and Eastman that have done a green line where in which they imagine the idea of changing all of Broadway and between Union Square and Columbus Circle into a park. There's an article in Zine Magazine that touches on so many of the benefits that could happen if we did this. This is my first official podcast. Um, it took longer than I wanted uh, for a lot of reasons, partially because I get nervous about doing these podcasts. Uh, the next one I want to do an interview, and so that would depend on like who I can get to talk to me and what topic that will that they'll want to cover it could be anything hopefully it'll be less than a month um that's it for tonight have a good one bye